Hey GeoTrekkers, happy new year and welcome to the year 2023. You helped make GeoTrek a very successful podcast in 2022. We wanted to thank you, all of our faithful listeners, for helping the podcast be so successful. We closed out the year ranked as the number two podcast on the topic of natural disasters, according to Feedspot. So Feedspot discovers, categorizes, and ranks blogs, podcasts, and influencers in several niche categories, and they've ranked us now as the number two podcast in natural disasters. So thank you for listening and thank you also for sharing our content with your family, your friends, your colleagues. We feel like the podcast is really just getting started and we have a lot of amazing content planned for the year 2023. So just keep listening, keep sharing and uh, let's enjoy the journey together. This week's guest is Murphy Bugs property claims manager at CNC Catastrophe and National Claims. Murphy has more than nine years experience in the insurance claims industry, specializing in claims adjusting, claims examination, catastrophe supervision, and estimate writing. He's also an active trainer and manager who oversees desk adjusting, field and quality control operations for multiple carriers in the property department at CNC. Murphy is known for his ability to connect desk and field adjusting in order to produce the highest quality claim possible for any policyholder's loss. So in this intro, I'm reading you about a, about Murphy's background. I've mentioned CNC Catastrophe and National Claims. They're the parent company supporting the GeoTrek podcast. So I'm actually a CNC employee. I've been with them for more than four years, and I've had an amazing experience with them as they encourage innovation and creativity, supporting endeavors like this podcast and a lot of other creative projects that we're working on. A little about CNC. Since 1988, they have specialized in insurance claim services providing allocation for daily and catastrophe claims, IT infrastructure and claims management systems, first notice of loss for TPA services, forensic engineering services, and a host of other services covering property, flood, and auto insurance claim assignments for insurance carriers, the National Flood Insurance Program, and several private flood insurance companies, both domestic and abroad. So they're involved with a lot of stuff and very innovative and very well connected doing their work to get out to catastrophes and help people get their feet back on the ground. We've done so many different podcasts about different angles about extreme weather and disasters here on the GeoTrek podcast. For this episode, we wanted to really interview a claims expert at CNC to answer your questions you might have about the insurance claims process. So this podcast is going to be useful for policyholders, but also for professionals, including young and prospective insurance claims professionals. So if you've ever thought about a career in in that field, uh, listen closely, or maybe that's a field you haven't heard of before, and this might just put something in your mind uh, of some possibilities for some uh, future professional work. Before we get into the conversation with Murphy, a little bit about this podcast, GeoTrack investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. A quick favor to ask you before we get into this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. And I'm telling you, subscribing to it, sharing with your family and friends and colleagues, this is why we're ranked number two right now as far as natural disaster podcasts. So again, a huge thank you to our listeners. You can help us out by subscribing and sharing this content with others. So hey, without further introduction, let's jump into this podcast. It's episode number 61. We're going to be interviewing Murphy Bugs, property claims manager at CNC catastrophe and national claims. 
Hey everyone, welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. We have a special guest today, Murphy Bugs, property claims manager with CNC Catastrophe and National Claims based in Mobile, Alabama. Murphy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Murphy, you know, we're recording this live in our Mobile, Alabama studio, and we were talking about a lot of us that got into the catastrophe space did not really intend to do that. We just kind of stumbled upon it. Could you share with us a little bit about your professional path? Like, how did you get into this line of work? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, I, I played baseball in college. As soon as I I graduated, I was kind of thinking, you know, what do I want to do? I thought I wanted to teach and coach. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the upper management folks here, his mom and my grandmother had been friends for a hundred years. Saw him one day in the grocery store. He said, hey, what are you doing now? I said, as a matter of fact, I just graduated college. And he said, well, do you need a job? I said, yeah, I mean, kind of. He said, all right, well, just come see me tomorrow. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, have you ever heard of insurance adjusting? I said, no, I've never heard of it. He said, well, then you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. We'll teach you from the ground up. So... I guess it worked out okay, but. That's pretty neat. So when was that? When was that conversation? Yeah, so that was late 2013. So okay. I, I graduated in December and that was, you know, right around Christmas time, really. Yeah, so, okay, so that's around Christmas time. Then you got into it. What was it like, like lo- the learning curve and transition? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of brand new things. Um, so when I first got in, it, I got in on the auto side uh, and I knew a little bit about, you know, the the kind of the auto build and vehicles and things like that. But as far as the nuances of hail damage and flood damage, you know, you just don't know that. Sure. Just common knowledge. Uh, So that was quite a big hurdle in the beginning. But really, once I started getting the hang of it and coming to study halls and things like that, it really kind of opened up my mind to what's out there. Murphy, what was it like getting out there in the field for like your first big claims event? Was it a flood? Was it a hailstorm? What was it? Yeah, so it was actually a big hailstorm. I Drove from here to Chicago, Illinois. I can remember going over the Dolly Parton Bridge and thinking, what am I doing? I don't know where I'm going. I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, So it was very overwhelming at first. But when I got out there, it was set up in one of the old fire stations. Uh, So it's basically like a drive-in where cars came through for hail estimates. And I had a blast. I loved it. So they advertise, if you have hail damage, come to this place and there will be basically adjusters there to look at your vehicle. Exactly. Yep. So you're just kind of going through seeing the hail damage and, and it sounds like you picked up the learning curve pretty quick. Yeah. And, and like I said, we had a lot of good people. We had a lot of veterans on that, what they call drive in. So they were able to help and kind of walk you through your first couple. And then after that, it just I mean, when you're doing it every day, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, it becomes second nature pretty quickly. So Murphy, I wanted to kind of help walk our listeners through the process of you showing up at a property claim. There's the homeowner. Obviously, they're distressed. They've gone through all of this. What does it look like? I mean, are you walking generally around the outside? Are you also going inside? Are you going on the roof? I mean, what does this process look like? Yeah, and I think it's different. So as a flood adjuster, there's certain, you know, paths that you have to take, whether you go around the house in the crawl space basement, and obviously you're going to go in the inside and, you know, assess the flood damage. Whereas a property adjuster, you know, same thing, you're going to get there. You're going to talk to the policyholder, let them know, hey, this is what I'm going to do. If you have any additional information, please give it to me, whether it's you know, mitigation invoices, contractors estimates, things like that. But really, you kind of create your own. And we kind of use it as a rule of thumb, you know, walk around the house, you know, take all of your elevation photos, then get on the roof, um, assess the roof damage, whether there is any or isn't any, you know, some carriers allow us to even use drones if it's a very steep roof or, you know, two or three stories, um, and then make your way to the inside, you know, to see, you know, the exterior damage, did it also cause interior damage and then address the contents too. You know, people don't really think about that when they think property damage, they think of the actual structure, but there's also, you know, everybody's things that are inside that may have gotten damaged. Have you seen cases where people take action before the storm to kind of help protect their contents, maybe try to get them up or do something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And we always ask, you know, cause really the first contact 
contact is made by the desk adjuster. So we always relay that information to the policyholder too. make sure you mitigate your damages as much as you can. You know, don't throw anything away, you know, because it could affect coverage. Um, you know, obviously we want to pay for everything that we can. Uh, so we want to be able to address it. Maybe it's damaged flooring that they had to pull up because it was wet, um, you know, or, you know, tiles that slid off on a roof, you know, make sure you keep a couple of those. Murphy, is it pretty straightforward to see how high, say like flooding got, or sometimes is it hard to tell? Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to tell on the outside. So a lot of times with a flood line, you know, you've got some kind of debris line as well, whether it's cut grass or leaves, you know, any kind of, you know, outside, um, you know, tree debris and things like that. Now on the inside, you know, that line can be a lot different, you know, and I, I think that's eye opening the first time you see it. The outside flood line may be 10 inches where the inside may be two inches, you know, so it can throw you off at first. Um, but once you see a couple of them like that, you kind of know what to look for. So I see. So again, that line outside the house may be different than inside, sure. especially if it's pretty airtight. If sure. maybe a lot of water was not coming in the doors. Sure. Things Absolutely. Like that. Well, so Murphy, there you are. All these people are bringing their hill damaged cars. You learn the ropes pretty quickly. Well, what happened after that? I mean, how did your profession, what, what was next professionally for you? Yeah, so really after doing a couple of those drive-ins, I came back home. Uh, there was another opportunity in our mobile office um, doing some things on the property side. Again, brand new, you know, haven't done property before, but got involved with the folks in the office. I just kind of learned as you went, worked on some smaller storms first, you know, hail and wind storms and things like that, and really started to catch on and really kind of fell in love with the property side of it. Oh, that's really interesting. What do you like the most about working in property? Yeah, I mean, I like the property side of it because I guess I'm more used to looking at roofs and interior damages and things like that. So I feel like I have a better knowledge base than I would maybe on the flood side, estimating from the ground up. To me, it's easier estimating from the roof down. So, Yeah, Murphy, can you walk us through to a lot of our guests may have heard of insurance adjusting, but not really know how it works. So there are like field adjusters and desk adjusters. Can you explain the difference? Like how does all how do all these pieces fit together? Yeah, so it is really one, you know, they're two parts of the claim and they do work together, but at the same time, they are totally different. So the field adjuster, you know, they're actually going to go out to the house, inspect the claim, take the photos, write the estimate, whereas the desk adjuster is really kind of the XYZ portion of the claim. They handle the inside stuff, which is, you know, reviewing that claim, making sure the, you know, the endorsements and exclusions have been applied correctly, making sure the estimate is in tip top shape, uh, issuing any payments, writing a coverage letter, so on and so forth. So what's it like? post-disaster, you know, a hurricane comes through west coast of Florida or Louisiana, field adjusters are getting out there. I mean, what does that look like for them getting out in the field to do some adjustment? Yeah, so it is, it's challenging for a field adjuster because, I mean, you think you're going to an area to work claims, no problem, but it's a disaster area. I mean, it, you know, in all reality, it is. So, I mean, you know, power is is few and far between, cell towers are down, um, you know, you have a lot of adjusters going to the area from all over the country, so hotels are hard to come by. Uh, so it can be challenging when you first get to really ground zero out there as a field adjuster. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's almost like society is not working as you'd expect, right. right? May not have electricity, other services like that. So it's, it's obviously challenging. Have you faced issues with just communicating with people or using that smartphone map? I mean, how, how do you how have you learned to kind of navigate around these catastrophe areas. Yeah, it can be really hard to get in touch with policyholders, especially when you get out there. You know, you're ready to hit the ground running and get working. The carrier's expecting you to start turning files in, but you're having a hard time getting in touch with people. And if it's a really bad hit area, maybe there was a lot of evacuations and they're not home, you know, so they can't help you inspect and go inside their house and things like that. So it can be, you know, it can be a challenge from the get-go. And so um, when you go into a catastrophe zone, are you typically there for days, weeks? I mean, how, how long are you there? 
Yeah, so we like to stage them out. We like to get them there, you know, before we start getting claims. You know, typically at one certain time, we know we're going to get claims. We just don't know how many. So we'll send a core group of field adjusters down to the area, you know, so they can get set up. They can get Airbnb, hotel, whatever the case may be. And then once we start getting them claims, then they're able to start calling and inspecting and things like that. When I've been in disaster zones, I've often seen there's almost like this commuting like Manhattan effect of this massive amount of people trying to get to the disaster zone in the morning, doing their work, whether they're a roofer, a contractor, emergency management, uh, insurance adjuster, and then in the evening kind of going out. Is that pretty typical that the only lodging you can find is not in the disaster zone? Yeah, I think that is very typical. You know, we have some field adjusters that have to stay hour, two hours away from the actual disaster zone just so they can get internet signal, Wi-Fi, cell signal, a hotel to stay in. So, yeah. That's a good point. Not only do you have to get on the ground at the site to do the adjusting, but then you have to get back to write it up and you need internet or Wi-Fi, right, to communicate and send these claims in. Absolutely. I mean, we have a lot of our field adjusters that use those MiFi spots that you can buy like at Best Buy, just so, you know, in areas like that where they don't have Wi-Fi or internet signal available, they can use that. Um, What do you, so... I've been in disaster zones as well where maybe one carrier is down, like maybe Verizon's down, but AT&T is working. If you get a team of people, usually does someone have connectivity, hopefully? Yeah, hopefully they do. A lot of our field adjusters go down in groups and, you know, it always ends up that they have different cell phone carriers. One of them doesn't work. Like you said, maybe Verizon, but, you know, uh, Sprint is working or AT&T, whatever the case may be. We have field adjusters a lot of times, too, that will go to, you know, local grocery stores or whatever like that and get one of those track phones. Um, you know, basically like a yeah. go phone that they can just activate for that storm because that will give them signal and then they just discontinue it when the storm's over. So. I see. So use that temporarily just to have some kind of signal and some way to communicate. Absolutely. Murphy, how long does it take someone to really get trained? You know, the, our young professionals listening to this, they might say, wow, this is really interesting. I want to learn more about this. How could people kind of start on this route to try adjusting? And then how would they get trained? How long does it take to get trained? Yeah, I think it really depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a field adjuster, I think you have to have a little bit of a, maybe a construction background. And if not, I didn't when I first started, but there's always classes that are offered. Um, YouTube is, you know, millennials best way to learn things, you know, so you can go on there. There's YouTube for everything, you know, how the construction of a house is done. What are the components of a roof? How to use Xactimate, you know, our estimating software, things like that. And then CNC also posts, you know, a lot of those training videos. And we have training classes throughout the year that may be, two, three, five-day classes where you can do property adjusting or auto adjusting, uh, flood adjusting, things like that. Are there any differences from one state to another? Yeah, there are. So there's certain state statutes that you have to follow depending on which state you're in. Florida is a little tricky because there's a whole lot of legislature that goes into it. Um, I mean, just for an example, in Florida, you know, if your roof is built before March 1st, 2009, it's 25% damage to replace a roof, where if it's after that date, it has to be 50% damage to replace a roof. Uh, Texas is even different than that. The Northeast is a little bit different. So yeah, it does depend on the state. Wow. So that's interesting. They have different policies and regulations depending where you're at. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like flood where it's a government program where all the, you know, all the policies are the same, you know, in, in homeowners, it's different by carrier. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when there is a huge catastrophe event, are people often coming to the office here in Mobile and then deploying, or are they often just meeting up close to the disaster site? 
So a lot of times what we have is almost like a HQ, you know, close to the disaster zone, maybe a couple hours away where we send one of our staff folks, whether it be a field manager, and we kind of have a round table with all of our field adjusters, whether it's 50, 100 of them. And we meet, we go over hot topics, what they're going to see, um, coverage bulletins that maybe have been provided to us by the carrier. But a lot of times they don't come to the office. We call them, they're ready to go, and they immediately start, you know, making their journey down to wherever they're going. Sure. Is there some type, we talked about different regulations per state. Is there like a certification? Do you need to be like certified in these different states or can anyone do adjusting anywhere? Yeah, not necessarily certified. Now you do have to have a home state license and this is specific for property. So if you live in Alabama, like I do, I have an Alabama state license, which reciprocates with other states. So you have to have that state's uh, specific license to actually work claims there. Now, some states are non-licensing. You know, a couple of them are Illinois, Missouri. You know, you don't have to have a license. You just have to have a home state license. But in order to work in Florida or Texas or North Carolina, you have to have that specific license to work them. I got you. That makes sense. So it it seems like it depends somewhat where you are. You need to have your home state license. And then depending where you are, for sure, there's at least different guidelines and and things like that. Um, I want to ask you, so let's say once you're fully trained and you really have completed your learning curve, you know what you're doing, how many houses can you do, can you adjust basically in a day? I think some of our more experienced field adjusters can do four to five a day just because they're very seasoned. They kind of have a really good tick sheet of what they want to do when they get there. You know, they have their own process they've built out over years of experience, whereas a new person may be able to do, you know, two to three a day. You know, I think it's kind of a rule of thumb. If you spend two hours on an inspection, you've done a really thorough inspection. You know, less than that, you almost start to question, did I miss something? Did I forget something? Um, So, like I said, I think it does depend on really your expertise and your knowledge. What do you do if you want to adjust a house and the homeowner says, I'm still 200 miles away, I evacuated? Is there a way that you can do it from the outside? Do you have to go in every house? Yeah, so a lot of carriers are very specific about that. They want you to do a full inspection. They don't want it to be done in piecemeal, where I can do the outside when they're not here, and I'll come back in a couple weeks and do the inside. You know, certain carriers have guidelines to where the whole file has to be completed by a certain date, and a lot of it's triggered off the date of inspection. So they want it to be all inspected at one time. What, so I hear people in disaster zones say, man, I really want to get back in. The authorities aren't letting me, but I want to get back in and treat my house before mold sets in. And this type of black mold, other things can quickly develop in on the back end of a flood event. How does that play out? So because we know like the flood event may happen and the flood may come in and go out on day one and maybe by day three or four mold may set in. So the adjuster may come in before or after the mold shows up. How does that all play out? Because things are so dynamic in these houses that are damaged. Yeah, I think carriers are pretty lenient is not the right word, but I think they're very understanding when it comes to things like that. You know, if you had to evacuate and you had to get out of the area, there are certain things that are going to be beyond your control. You know, certain duties after a loss or you have to mitigate, but you can't mitigate if, you know, the government authority. Sure, you can't get back home. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Have you seen a lot of mold set in within days of a flood? Oh, yeah, like absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we. I mean, we see it every day, you know, when, when we do, you know, the catastrophe storm related claims, it's it's going to happen whether we like it or not. Does that play into the claim? Like oh, yeah. once, once there's mold there? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of these policies, especially on the property side, they have certain endorsements that um, allow you for fungi, wet, dry rot up to a certain dollar amount. So that's all, you know, encompassed in the policy. And it's there's certain limits that you could pay up to, um, but we can absolutely address it. Murphy, I've 
talked to, unfortunately, way too many homeowners that feel like they were blindsided or surprised, right? The, the flood happens, they've been paying their premium. They have an idea in their head what's covered. And then after the storm, they find out what they thought was covered isn't covered. What, what advice do you have for homeowners related to that topic? Yeah, the best way to say it is just to know your policy and, and read through your policy, know what it's covered, uh, know what is covered and what's not. Your agent a lot of times can help with that as well. Um, it's it's some of those things that you just it's not common knowledge you don't know and sure. we have run into policyholders that think certain things that are covered that aren't and that can be a very difficult conversation to have with a policy sure holder. so a good agent is going to walk you through and say do you realize with this your your maybe building is covered but your contents aren't or something like that yeah you know and we depend on our field and our desk adjusters a lot too to help explain that because even though they may have had that conversation with the agent daily life you forget those kind of sure you know nuanced details so it's really our job as the claims adjuster to also you know echo that you know that sentiment and saying hey you know just letting you know up front this is unfortunately not going to be covered but sure. we can do this also I see so to give them the option like that's something you can add moving forward absolutely yeah and we all always tell them, you know, hey, there are certain endorsements that you can get added. Now, they may cost more on your premium, but they will help you get more coverage on the specific policy. Yeah. Murphy, I'm always amazed to hear of field adjusters out there for, you know, 25 days and often they're not taking weekends. They're pulling 12 hour days out in there in the hot sun, going into houses that may smell bad, may have sure. mold. There's no air conditioning. How do you handle that physically? I mean, that's just a tremendous toll and strain on the body. And then again, you're going maybe seven days a week. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's why I tip my hat every day to field adjusters. You know, they have a very difficult job that inside folks just don't understand. You know, we get to come sit in an office at a cubicle and air conditioning, whereas the field adjusters, they're out there really doing the heavy lifting. Like you said, they're out there in the heat. They're out there in, you know, mold infested houses and things like that. They have the most difficult job. Um, and I think it is a challenge in the beginning to get over it, especially working the 12 hour days. But I think as a field adjuster, you also have to understand it's going to be very difficult um, you know, and very time intensive in the very beginning, but eventually, you know, it will slow down. Um, you mean at the beginning of any event, right? Like you exactly. you kind of get that first couple of weeks where right. there's way more claims than you can maybe handle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. And that makes sense. So in general, when you've seen a big event, how long does the adjusting last for? Yeah. I mean, you know, just um, the one that we're doing right now with Ian and Nicole that happened back to back, we had some field adjusters that were doing both storms. Um, and they went down there beginning of October and some of them are still there, um, you know, because we get late reported claims and things like that. And we need those field adjusters to kind of hang around for those claims that straggle in. Maybe for people that were, you know, snowbirds and they don't live in Florida, sure. they're just now coming down for Christmas holidays or things like that. So, Murphy, what are the challenges for desk adjusters? I mean, so you're communicating with all these people out in the field. Is it hard to kind of keep all that straight? I mean, again, they're also seeing this influx of tremendous amount of claims in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really juggling, you know, all the different parties. You know, you always want to stay in touch with the policyholder. That's most important from the customer service side. But you also have to be available for the field adjuster, too. Um, and then the carrier is also giving you messaging throughout the storm. So you're really trying to make sure everybody's on the same page. And we try to have meetings and things like that with our field staff and desk to make sure they're on the same page. The best thing we can do really is communicate that to the policyholders so they're also in tune with what's going on and what's changed, you know, in sure. the last day or last week. Murphy, insurance is a huge safety net. I mean, you're really getting out there helping put people's lives together after one of the worst things that's ever happened to them. 
Can you think of one or two amazing success stories where people were truly grateful? Like, thank you for helping this process go through so quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a lot of great folks out there that do field adjusting and desk adjusting alike. You know, and for these policyholders, I always tell our staff, hey, it may be that they're, you know, they lost 10 shingles on their roof, but this is a big deal to them, right? It's their house. Think about it if it was your house. You'd want to treat them, you know, with the same type of, you know, sympathy that, you know, that they want to get throughout, you know, throughout their claims process. So, yeah, I mean, we have success stories throughout every storm. We have great field adjusters, great desk staff um, that really help get those insurance back to, you know, pre-loss conditions. And they also show a lot of things. You always have some, too, that are, you know, maybe a little bit agitated by the length of the process. But we just try to coach them through that. Let them know, hey, you know, we just want to make sure we do a thorough job. We address everything that's at your property. Uh, And I think most insureds are very understanding, you know, once we, you know, once we give them that talk path. When a disaster hits a community, if someone's impacted and they have to submit a claim, what are the different ways they reach out? I mean, are they doing this mostly over the phone? Is there an app? How do they do it? Yeah, I think a lot of times depends on the carrier. So there are different ways for an insured to report a claim. That's, a lot of carriers have a web portal where they can do it. Uh, some of them just have a regular 24-7 customer service line, you know, a claims hotline where they can call in. So there's a variety of ways that they can call on that claim. Sure. Incidentally, for our listeners, something I learned from Hurricane Ian, I was on the ground for about a week. Jeremiah and I were, were down there. Jeremiah Long, he does a lot of our um, media work and social media work, a lot of videography. We were down there and we, we noticed that cell phone service was really compromised. And we talked to a resident who said, I guess the cell phone towers were strained and they couldn't really get calls out that well, but they realized if they placed in a call to submit their claim at 3 a.m., not that many people were up. So actually in the middle of the night, they were doing some of this uh, kind of submitting their claims information because the they got better cell reception. Yeah, we've experienced that too, where you get a huge influx of claims overnight, but during the day, it seems like it's very slow. Yeah, yeah, possibly they can't get the call out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So just, just something to think about if you're listening to this, if you ever go through a disaster and if you have trouble having connectivity on the on the cell phone, maybe try submitting your claim in the middle of the night. I know a lot of adjusters are working around the clock. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. So I have to ask this question, you know, it, it seems like a catastrophe hits, the adjusters are there, they're doing so much work in a short amount of time. And then what? I mean, a few months later, now that the event is over, you've hopefully done a lot of work, you've, you know, um, helped a lot of people out and also been able to, you know, make a decent amount of money in a short amount of time, but then there are no more catastrophes. Can you explain kind of that, that ebb and flow of the rush of all this work and then maybe a long period without work for a claims adjuster? Yeah. So I think for a claims adjuster too, you have to find, you know, your niche, you know, what's best for you. Do you want to be a cat adjuster to where you're super busy for two or three months out of the year? And then that lasts you. Uh, Do you want to do that with daily work also, Um, you know, and work daily, you know, whether it's water leak claims or, you know, just daily hail claims or wind claims based on where you live. I think to each their own really. And we have some that do both. Um, And that's why I think you see a lot of, you know, a lot of field adjusters that strictly do cat they want as many claims as you can give them because it's got to last them throughout the rest of the year. I see. They might be doing a year's worth of work in maybe two or three months or exactly. something like that. Exactly. Have you come across people that have other occupations and then just pick up CAT as a part-time job? Sure. We have seen that, especially field adjusters. Now, desk gets a little bit more difficult, um, but field adjusters, yeah, absolutely. You know, They save up their PTO, and then when that hurricane's in the Gulf, they go ahead and schedule it out. They can go to the disaster zone for you know two weeks or three weeks, work those claims, and then come back and 
you know, write them and then go back to their, you know, their regular job. We That's interesting. That so they might actually use pay time off to say, I'm going to go to this disaster zone for two weeks, do a ton of claims and then do that really as a part-time income. Absolutely. Oh, that's really interesting. So um, obviously hurricanes have a big impact, uh, hail in the in the plains. I mean, how do these different disasters play out as far as the number of claims? I know like hurricanes are big in the news, but then I've heard, had some people say, you know, there are a lot of little hailstorms that don't make the national news, but they're happening almost every day in the spring and summer. Sure, exactly. I mean, just in Texas, you know, the hailstorms are, I mean, they're it's multiple of them, you know, and it can be multiple hailstorms in a month too. Um, hurricanes obviously get us more claims just because there's a wider spread area that's been affected. But like you said, hailstorms, um, you know, last year with the Texas freeze that happened, that was a big event for us. And most people, you know, may not think that they may think, oh, you know, I'm thinking more tornado hurricane would cause you to have more claims. But like even that freeze storm that caused uh, you know, a good bit of work for us, you know, or not caused, but you know, created a good sure. bit of work for us. Well, I know I, I live in Southeast Texas yep. and so many people lost power, yep. had freezing temperatures in their home, broken pipes. Right. And suddenly it, it's kind of in a way a, a flood event, even yes. though it was a freeze event. Yes. And that brings us into winter weather. I mean, we're coming into wintertime now. There's an Arctic blast spreading across the U.S. What kind of claims might we see in the wintertime? Just we talked a little bit about the Texas freeze, but just in, in a sense, in general, across the states, what, what, what might we see in a given winter? Yeah, I think you may see some, uh, like we st- talked about freeze claims as well. Um, even with snowstorms, you know, there's a lot of wind that a lot of times comes with through that. Uh, even, you know, um, you know, collapsing of roofs, you know, from weight of snow and things like that. And when that snow starts to melt, you know, and then it creates water. Uh, so that also can be, you know, uh, the I guess the cause of even more claims, really. Have you ever come across ice dams, like where the water starts to melt and then refreezes near the edge of the roof? Yes, absolutely we have, yeah. You know, it's interesting. My parents live on top of a hill in Pennsylvania. I thought they would never have any kind of water damage, flood damage. They're like, if they flood, everyone in the state of Pennsylvania is right. flooded. And I talked to my my folks a couple of years ago and said, what are you doing? And they said, we're mopping up flood water. How in the world is that happening? Here it was an ice dam. So basically yeah. the snow started melting on the roof. It refroze near the edge and it backed up water under their shingles. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so are there other things like this that you can think of that homeowners may not think of? It's not just your your typical kind of hazard. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good example. Honestly, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but the ice damming is a, I mean, that is a kind of a a secondary loss that you don't really think of, but it can happen. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably. Yeah, that's probably, I came across that one and I thought, wow, that's that's kind of weird. I never would have expected that, but but there it happened anyway. As far as um, work that our adjusters do in the field are, are the main states they spend time with like say texas oklahoma with the severe weather and then maybe along the gulf coast for hurricanes or are there other places they go as well yeah no i think that's probably your big ones like I said your your um central states like your your texas oklahoma places like that uh, even colorado where you know you're going to get hailstorms really throughout the year almost um and then really late in the year well, i say late in the year more you know late summer fall winter you know your hurricane states your southeastern coastal states. I think that's where most of the work is throughout the year, but there's always daily losses. You know, there's always pipe leak claims, you know, in Connecticut that, you know, happen on April 1st, you know, so it's not 
all the time, you know, directly related to what time of year, because there's always those daily losses that are going to happen too. Murphy, part of your story is that you did not really have exposure to working in the insurance industry. And then suddenly you just kind of stumbled upon this based on a conversation and, and you've run with it. Has this changed how you look at insurance maybe for your own personal property? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, it's really opened my eyes when I started doing it. You know, I, I noticed I would drive down the neighborhood and I'd start looking at roofs left and right, you know, or I'd start looking at cars and say, well, that one had hail damage. I wonder when that happened. So yeah, it really does open your eyes like anything else. When you do things, you know, each day and you kind of get used to looking at it, you start noticing more things or you go by and you say, how oh, that crawl space, you know, I don't really know if that's set up the right way. That's going to let a lot of water in if it starts ponding in the yard, you know, things like that. So like if friends or family talk to you like, well, I, I have to insure my house. What are some things that you would tell someone like to look out for in a policy? Yeah. So I would absolutely tell them, you know, hey, really look into that policy. Make sure it covers what you want it to cover. There's always additional um, endorsements that you can put on. And yes, it will cost extra on premiums but it'll help you in the long run. You know, insurance is one of those things you pay for it and hope you never have to use it. But in the event you do have to use it, you hope that it's going to cover as much as it possibly can. So, Well, that's right. And if people really cut corners with that and they don't have good coverage, it can really set them back if they get hit in a storm. Exactly. I mean, the same thing when it comes to a hurricane deductible. You know, hurricane deductibles are done by a certain percentage of the, you know, the coverage of your dwelling. Well, you know, you may think, well, you know, I'm going to pay a little bit less premiums in your hurricane deductibles, $12,000. You know, that that really comes into play whenever you do have a hurricane event. Um you know, I've, I've talked to policyholders, too, and they, they're they astounded by, you know, how large their hurricane deductible is. And you say, well, you know, it's based off a percentage and that's, you know, that all ties into your premiums. And it really opens their eyes, too, that maybe they weren't aware of in the beginning. But when that policy comes up for renewal, they're going to make that change pretty quickly. So oftentimes, if you're paying a higher premium every month or every year, that could bring down that hurricane deductible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, paying out that ten or $12,000 on a lump sum just because of, there's hurricane damage on your roof, that can really set people back. Exactly. I mean, you, you have a hurricane damage claim where it's a fairly large roof and it's, you know, $15,000, $16,000. If they have a $10,000 hurricane deductible, well, that's what's got to come out of pocket for them. You know, the carrier will pay for the other five, you know, but you're really paying for two thirds of it. And that can be difficult for a policyholder. Whereas if you pay more on your premiums and you have a three or $4,000 deductible, it makes it a little bit more manageable. Sure. When that event actually happens, if it does, all of a sudden you can navigate that a lot easier. Yep. Um, so the carriers put that there, I'm imagining because hurricanes are such extensive events, right? They can't take on that much exactly. payout yeah. at one time. Yeah. That much exposure for them, I think could be really detrimental, you know, to their, you know, their indemnity payments that they're able to pay out on each claim. Yeah. Murphy, I wanted to ask you some questions about some more complex cases. You know, what we've talked about before, it's uh, some more of the standard stuff, but there's a lot of complex stuff that can happen in adjustment. An example, you get a homeowner that evacuates for a hurricane. They come back, they find terrible damage in their home. So the first thing they see is there's partially a hole in the roof, right? So they call up their homeowner's insurance and say, hey, I have roof damage. But homeowner said, you're actually in an area that had storm surge flooding. Everyone flooded with floodwater or above the ground. So this isn't a homeowner's case. It's a flood insurance case. So then that homeowner contacts their flood insurance and flood insurance says, wait, you have roof damage. This isn't a flood insurance case. It's a homeowner's case. So sometimes the two carriers will fight against each other or contest each other. Where does this put the field adjuster? I mean, they're there in this complex situation where you have two companies maybe disagreeing. Um, how can the field adjuster you know, navigate the situation and maybe even help the homeowners just resolve and work through this? 
Yeah, so I think in a really lucky scenario, the insured has two separate policies, right, for flood and property insurance. Um, we have found some cases where they're missing one or the other. Most likely the flood carrier is missing and they only have property damages. And that can be a little tricky to navigate, especially as a, you know, as a property adjuster, you go out there and you can't necessarily estimate for flood damages because they're not covered under their homeowner's policy. But in a, in a best case scenario, they have a carrier for both. And a lot of times what will happen is the flood adjuster um, and the homeowner's adjuster will both go out to the house. Um, maybe not necessarily at the same time, but they'll both go out there and do their own independent inspections. So it won't necessarily be one person that does a, a joint inspection that does both of them at the same time. Um, but each adjuster will do their best to kind of delineate which is which, you know, what's flood related and what's wind related. Um, so they try to do that when they go out to the house so they can really kind of separate, you know, the damages. And sometimes we even have to get an engineer involved, you know, if it's a really tricky scenario, like a waterfront property or something like that. Kind of doing some of the forensic work to piece together what most likely happened, I'm imagining. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and the value then again, if they have wind and flood coverage, then basically it's going to be paid out. It's just a matter of determining who pays what, right? So that's ideal. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And I think, you know, this is a good, um, you know, um, a good point too for our, our field adjusters out there uh, just to really document the best you can, right? Take a lot of photos, document everything you possibly can because it in some of these more complex cases, I think I would imagine some of those photos and testimony might even be used in court in the more complex cases, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and field adjusters kind of, if they don't already know, we always, you know, caution them going into working these claims, especially in a catastrophe, you know, that everything is discoverable. So all of your photos, all of your narrative reports, so everything you say, take a photo of, take a video of, all of it can be discoverable, you know, in a court of law. Like if you said, if it ends up going to litigation, you know, the adjuster could be called in to give a a deposition, you know, to be able to give their, you know, kind of verbal statement on what they inspected, what they believe is and is not related to the cause of loss that they're actually inspecting for. That makes sense. And that's a really good uh, piece of advice as well. People, especially younger field adjusters may not understand about things being discoverable that pretty much any any photos, any videos, anything that you've written about this, right? It, it could be used by one or both sides to help um, support their position. Yeah, absolutely. Even their notes in the file, you know, even in documentation that they put in the actual notes, whether it's in a claims management system or if if it's in like exact analysis, you know, uh, systems like that, maybe not even necessarily just their documents, but really their phone calls, their emails, text messages. I mean, really anything is fair game in that scenario. Well, that proves the importance of the work of the field adjusters that they're out there on the ground. They're really taking evidence and what they do. It's, it's not only helping that homeowner get their feet back on the ground, but in some of these cases, helping the, the carriers kind of resolve what happened because they were the expert on the scene, right? Exactly right. Murphy, a lot of folks, um, when I wanted to do a podcast about adjusting, they're like, talk to Murphy. He's just, he's a great guy. He's a positive guy. So you, you strike me as someone that just, you know, thinks the best about people. You're a very positive person. And so I'd imagine going out into these different um, adjustment claims, that's you're, you're taking that great attitude with you out in the field. Unfortunately, in insurance adjusting, sometimes we hear about fraud, right? So I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, how we know that it happens in the industry, how can adjusters go out there, do a good professional job, think the best about the people involved, but um, if they're out there on the field, they're 
recording, you know, they're, they're basically completing a claim. They're taking photos, they're taking videos. Um, what happens when things don't quite add up or maybe the damage that was supposedly there, it doesn't quite look like that. How can adjusters navigate this if potentially there's fraud involved? Yes, but I think always when you go out to the property, you do want to give the insured the benefit of the doubt, right? You always want to assume that it is storm related, but as you stated, in some scenarios, that's not the case, and you don't know there till you get on site. You know, you can't tell a lot of it just talking to them over the phone, but you can tell a lot of things whenever you get out to the property. For instance, um, you can see, you know, items that are what we call other than hail, you know, something that's not hail related or maybe not wind related damages. Um, there are certain, uh, you know, weather uh, surveys and, uh, you know, weather analytical reports that we can gather um, online that will give us, you know, the estimated wind speeds on any specific date. And that goes back a year or so. Um, hail size as well. There's a bunch of different sites that'll give you that information. So it's almost like fact checking while you're out there. Um, you know, if they are claiming, you know, inch hail on this specific date of loss, you can check your, you know, your weather historical reports and be able to see, okay, was there inch hail, you know, in this zip code or, you know, even on this particular street level on this date. Um, and it's very possible that maybe just the date's incorrect. You know, maybe they, the reported date of loss is not accurate and they just need that changed. And a lot of times the carrier will work with them on that, you know, and get that date of loss changed. But if it's really, you know, outlandish and there's not inch hail, you know, within a couple months of that date of loss, you know, then you kind of have to go down the road of, okay, maybe this isn't related to this loss. And it can be difficult, um, but it's a situation where I think you kind of always have to be honest and upfront with the insured and tell them exactly what you see. You know, I don't believe this is related to this storm. I'm still going to document everything. I'm still going to take photos. Uh, but at this time, unless we can get some more uh, information, or maybe even a, uh, you know, an actual expert on hail and wind damages to come out. At this time, I'm not going to be writing for any of this damage. So with the date, for example, maybe a homeowner submits a hail claim that happened on May 13th, but it actually was May 15th. So it could be like the event actually happened. They just had the wrong date, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and a, lot, a lot of these policyholders, they have uh, contractors come to their house, you know, roofers, and they say, hey, you've got hail damage and it happened on this date. Well, they may just re have reported the wrong date up front. And sometimes that happens. And carriers are usually, you know, again, benefit of the doubt, they're going to work with the insured and say, okay, we'll adjust your date of loss so we can afford you coverage for these, you know, for these damages. I've heard some, you know, experts, people that have been doing adjusting for a long time mentioned too, not to jump to conclusions, you know, just do your best out there, document everything thing you can. But, you know, even if it is fraud, it may not be the homeowner that's behind it. We've heard of cases where roofers will go down a street, knock on doors and say, hey, you weren't here last week, but there was a huge uh, hailstorm. Do you mind if I get up on your roof? You know, so perhaps a claim is filed and maybe the homeowner's the victim as well. So it's, uh, you know, not maybe jumping to conclusions, but as the adjuster doing your best to document and, and like you said, checking those meteorological uh, fact check sources and, and just trying to piece together what we think best happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, even situations where it may be a third party that could have caused damages that the insured was unaware of, that can be sort of a lengthy process and a little bit sticky once you get into it. But sometimes the insurance company can subrogate against that third party, you know, whether it's a contractor or a representative or something along those lines.
Murphy, one more question about some of these more complex cases here. So what happens when you have to inspect on a represented claim where the PA or attorney is claiming damage that is clearly not related to the loss? How should the field adjuster address that on site or, um, you know, with a third party representative? Like how to handle cases like that? Yeah, so a lot of times when a claim is filed and insured, you know, they have every right to hire a public adjuster or an attorney to represent them, you know, when they're filing their claim with the insurance company. And it's our job as the adjuster to meet with that third party representative on site and inspect it at the same time. Um, What can end up happening is if we don't inspect at the same time, then it becomes a he said, she said, you know, and it's just two people that really can't come to an agreed scope. But I find a lot of times that if we can meet with the representative on site, um, a lot of times those those disputes can be overcome and we can, you know, point out damages and say, hey, you know, based on, you know, this data that I have, I don't believe that's either related to this date of loss or I don't believe maybe it's related uh, to this specific type of loss, whether it be, you know, hail or wind or lightning or whatever the case may be. And again, I, I think it's all about being honest up front when you're meeting with that representative. And I think a lot of times um, people come to an agreed scope when they're able to meet on site with each other, but it, it becomes really challenging when you're not able to meet with that representative on site, because then, like I said, it's just one person says this and another person says this. Uh, Murphy, please excuse my ignorance here, but a public adjuster. So is that someone appointed by the court system to say they're going to go to the site and try to resolve with maybe the field adjuster what's happened? No, absolutely not. So there's plenty of public adjusting firms throughout the country um, that insureds can call and get to represent them. Um, And some insureds, I think, are maybe led in the wrong direction. They think that they have to have a public adjuster because it's a them versus the insurance company, when in all reality, it's not. Insurance companies are there to pay out legitimate losses for damages that happen on those dates. So But I think sometimes policyholders think that they have to have somebody in their corner, maybe an expert on their side that will tell their story. So I think in the beginning, it it seems like it's it's a uh, it's a us versus them type of deal. When in all reality, public adjusters sometimes are aren't needed, um, but sometimes they are, and they do help our field adjusters, um, you know, see damages or interpret damages a different way. So I wouldn't say it's always a, a bad thing, um, although it can be challenging. I think sometimes it can be a good thing when you when they have somebody that represents them, but any policyholder can hire a public adjuster at any time they choose. And it sounds like there is value in getting everyone out to the field at the same time to kind of help resolve this, right? Because you're looking at potential damage. It's like uh, probably just being in the same place at the same time and looking at the evidence together probably helps move those along pretty well, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because like I said, you know, photos can differ from one day to the next. You know, if both parties are at the site at the same time, they're going to have the same exact photos as the other party. Whereas, you know, like you mentioned, you know, in fraud cases, we could have photos from the first of the month. And by the 15th, there's a whole nother set of photos that come out that maybe don't necessarily jive with the initial set of photos that were taken. I see what you mean. If you're at the same place at the same time, you have the same lighting, the same conditions, it's going to match up obviously pretty well. Exactly. Murphy, awesome insights here. This is a little more complex stuff that I think a lot of our field adjusters that are getting a little more experience in the field will really enjoy your insights on this. So really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and perspectives here. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mind at all. 
Murphy, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast and share your experience and perspectives with us. I got a few big take-home points from this conversation with Murphy. Number one, insurance adjusting is an interesting career that enables people to make a good living while helping storm victims get back on their feet. It's a profession that requires considerable knowledge and training, and experts like Murphy are ready to train new adjusters at events sponsored by CNC Catastrophe and National Claims and their partners. So this is something, you know, it is a profession. It, It takes a lot of training and expertise but CNC is ready to help people learn this profession. And also keep in mind too, when you work in this profession, you're actually coming alongside people in some of the darkest moments of their life, helping them get their feet back on the ground. So it's really a worthwhile profession that's doing a lot of good in the world. Number two, a big part of insurance adjusting is clear communication. That's something that I really got from this conversation with Murphy. Adjusters must communicate regularly with policyholders and their colleagues handling the claim. If you're a good communicator, adjusting may be a great professional choice for you. I also love what Murphy said about the importance for adjusters to be honest and upfront with whomever they're communicating with during the, the claim process. I think that's that's good uh, professional training and, and insights for anyone in whatever profession you're in, but I could see how it would be really important in something like this where sometimes we have these complicated claims and we just need people to be honest and upfront and really know their stuff. And then finally, number three, it's important that adjusters clearly document what they're seeing in the field as thoroughly as possible. So experts encourage young adjusters to take as many photos as possible from different angles. As you observe the property from the inside and out, you want to document as much as you can. These observations are helpful to process a claim or even to help complex claims issues such as contentious cases that go to court. Field adjusters are doing this important work that touches on the fields of field science, forensic engineering, and even a little bit of what we might think of as detective work. One of the um, companies that one of the organizations that we've launched under CNC is called Flood Information Systems. With that, we're actually doing data-driven flood risk analysis around the country. And, you know, we can sometimes use uh, work, great field work that adjusters have done on the field to help us understand how flooding works in an area. And the more you document, this actually can be used to help improve the science to better predict floods in the future. So you're not only doing a profession for yourself and making a living, living, you're helping people get back on their feet after the storm, and you're also helping advance the science. So really, really cool stuff here that we covered on the podcast. If you're interested to learn more about CNC, Catastrophe and National Claims, or maybe pursue a career with them, check out their website at adjusting expectations.com. That's adjustingexpectations.com. Well, thanks again to Murphy for taking time this week to come on the podcast. Really cool stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to follow you professionally, see how your career continues to advance. But I know you've done a world of good. You're really providing great leadership here and really helping train a lot of our new adjusters as well to do uh, what they need to do in the field and at the desk. Hey, a big shout out as well to our CNC marketing team. As always, they're Seneth Baker, Jeremiah Long, Ashley Anderson, Christopher Cook, Amy Wilkins and Courtney Booker. I'm Dr. Hal. Thanks for tuning into the GeoTruck podcast and I'll catch you on the next episode, which will be episode number 62. Don't miss out. We're going to be covering some really interesting stuff next week.